And now that there's this massive collective call for us to show up for each other, I think people are really trying to learn and see what they were missing before. And that I think has the potential to really deepen our possibilities for relationships that have a more meaningful connection. Welcome to Good is in the Details. I'm your host, Gwendolyn Dolsky. And the theme of today's episode is possibility. I want you to keep that in mind as you're listening to this episode. And I will be joined once again by the very talented, very witty LA lawyer, Rudy Salo. We are interviewing philosopher, Dr. Corey Wong. And I've admired Dr. Wong's work for a while now. She has a wonderful approach to philosophy and what we can do with that. What studying these ideas, studying theory can do for us, how we can reach out in the community, how we can care about the community, how we can grow, and also in our relationships, and what a difference that makes for the art of living. Before we get started, I want to give a thank you to the reviewers of this show. We got a couple of great reviews on the pod. That was just so humbling. I'm so grateful. It's really exciting to see this podcast grow, and I'm so glad that it's resonating with you, the listeners. It's, yeah, it's just very, very cool. If you haven't yet, please rate and review the show. We also have a Facebook page. You can like it. And we're on Instagram. Good is in the details pod. Okay, now let's talk possibility. I have been, all right, so we were talking before. I've been familiar with your work for a long time. I think I found you on your blog on WordPress mm-hmm. years ago. Something that I noticed that you put on your on your website, which I will link in the show notes here, um, is this idea of philosophy as serving as the art of living. And I really like that. I've noticed in my own evolution of teaching that when I started, it was about worrying about the syllabus and organizing it. And then over time, I just came to terms with the realization that what I want for my students is for them to enjoy their lives. That's Mm -hmm. it. Everything else about the syllabus, the assignments, the discussions, the readings, and the skills, the critical thinking skills are all in service to that. But the number one thing for me is I want you to enjoy your life. Mm -hmm. So since you put philosophy as serving the art of living, what does that look like? Um, Well, I think the philosophy, I fell into philosophy by accident, not because I was like enamored by philosophy or even knew what it was as a student. And then I think I was a little bit jaded by philosophy too, as being pretty boring and like mostly irrelevant. So um, it wasn't something that I was really enamored with until I started engaging with philosophy that connected to experience and identity through a feminist lens or a critical race lens. And it was really through a special kind of environment with faculty that were cultivating diverse students in that space of saying like, this should be meaningful for your life. And so it's with that introduction that then I was like, wait a minute, yeah, philosophy is finally answering questions that I've been thinking about all my life in a way that resonates because it's helping me understand the world around me and helping me find my like location in my own experience. So that was when in graduate school, like I created this term philosophy because I think philosophy and life are better when they inform each other. But it turns out philosophy as the art of living is such an ancient idea of the real origin of philosophy to be sort of a therapeutic practice of the soul, however you think about that, from the ancient philosophers and the Stoics and others who were rooted in the purpose of philosophy to be that which gives a meaningful context for our lives. So I'm like you of thinking when I when I work 
work with students, I tell them, I don't need you to memorize these arguments or the logical structures behind what's going on. This is really a practice in cultivating your skills to read, write, think, and speak, and listen to the world so that you can navigate through it in a way that feels meaningful, purposeful, and like makes sense for you and hopefully can help us participate in our experiences in a way that builds into a better future that we can be somewhat conscious and intentional about. Yeah, we teach students a lot of skills, but how to enjoy their lives or how to live well is not on that list. Mm -hmm. Isn't that such a personal question about how you live your life well, just because of somebody's upbringing, somebody's ethnic background, somebody's life experiences Mm -hmm. where, you know, one person might think they are living their lives well, whereas another person looking from the outside is like, God, what a terrible life that person has. I mean, I don't know how you can how you can teach somebody to live their life well other than to, you know, just say, live your best life and live whatever it is that's going to make you happy and, and not hurt other people is the best way to live your life. I mean, I have no other idea how to You came up with a definition that. right there. Right. Yeah. I did? Yeah, yeah, you just offered one. Oh, you mean, Be you, happy mean you mean and the don't non-philosopher? The non-philosopher came up with an answer? <laughs> yeah. I came up with an answer? Oh, isn't that amazing? Wow. Yeah. You did. You did. Well, Aristotle says that the object of life is eudaimonia or happiness, which really, mm-hmm. it doesn't, eudaimonia doesn't translate well into English, but the notion of excellence, which is broad enough to allow for those different types of lives. Like you said, Rudy, like what if this is, you know, what if somebody really enjoys law, if somebody enjoys science, somebody enjoys philosophy, eudaimonia allows for all of those things, but it's still a definition that if somebody says, you know what, like, I just really love cocaine and that makes me happy for my life, then we'd have to say that doesn't fit the definition because it doesn't matter how much cocaine yeah, you do. I guess <laughs> you, you committed to this now. example. Yeah, I like it. We should. We, we need. We need to explore this. This is. This is. This, this is a really interesting topic. It doesn't matter. You will never be excellent. Like it, that. That will never make you excellent. As opposed to the pursuit of, let's say, justice, you can become more excellent. Yeah, I'm going to well, let that, I'm going to, I won't edit that out. I'll go ahead yeah. and do, live with that example that I gave. Do you want um, me to I'm do some Scarface? And, do you want me to do okay. some Scarface impressions while we're here? I <laughs> mean, know, I can, I can do a couple of good ones. That's okay. Um, <laughs> Corey, what do you think? <laughs> I, I think I agree with you that by saying, you know, like be happy and don't hurt people, that what you're really getting at is a sort of fundamental value. Somehow there's a, a value that provides the background context for what helps fill out the definition of a meaningful life for you. And I think like, Gwen, I think you and I both come from more existential frameworks. And so that to me is something that helps make sense of what we should be doing here in order to live a good life that doesn't become just an individualist subjective kind of uh, determination. And that is really the practice of philosophy, then asking those big questions when you strip everything away and you get down to, well, what does that look like? Why should we live a good life? And then how do we go about doing that? Those are like three pillars of philosophical questioning that anybody who doesn't even have to take a class can like sort of find themselves ruminating on. So from maybe cokeheads to stoners to who knows, like this is how people fall into philosophy because I think it's a pretty natural 
it's a natural human tendency for us to be asking these questions and wondering about what they are. I think psychology though has also come up with some answers. So for example, if somebody says, you know what, like I just really enjoy torturing kittens, um, we would say there is something problematic about that. Like that does not fit. You have to have some sort of a notion of happiness in order to be able to say that that's problematic. And so the questions that philosophy has been asking and has come up with answers from the ancient Greeks to like, it means this pursuit of excellence, that neuropsychology has actually come up with some concrete answers. I mean, we would need to, uh, you would need to see somebody, the, something needs to be taken care of there. There's some sort of a problem there if, or like putting a, lighting everything on fire, you know, that that's what makes you happy. We'd have to say that doesn't fit the definition. Or if somebody says, you know, if somebody asks a man, why do you beat your wife? And he says, it's because I love her. Then we'd have to say, okay, you have an incorrect definition of love. So there is some, it, we do have some parameters now that science and sociologists and psychologists can fill out some of the fuzziness. Is it my definition? Because I'm the non-philosopher here. I'm a lawyer. <laughs> this is my job. But is, doesn't my definition account for what you've brought up in that, hey, know yourself, do whatever it is that make you, makes you happy, except for don't hurt others in doing that. And, and in the others, that would also include yourself. So if you don't hurt others yeah. and yourself, that would fall under, hey, don't do cocaine. Or don't do that much cocaine that you hurt yourself. You know? I mean, I'm, not trying, I'm not trying to pass judgment upon any... Hey, Gwen, we need listeners, okay? And if okay. All night and they want to get into some philosophy podcast and they're doing a little cocaine, I am not going to discriminate against them. So there you go. There's number one. Number two... Others, I think, would include animals as well. So I do think I came up with the simplest definition that accounts for all of these issues that you brought up. Thank you very much. Yeah, pretty, <laughs> pretty good. <laughs> I think there, for me, there's another layer that gets really exciting when you start to ask these questions, which is actually about the potential for change and doing things differently that doesn't have to be prescriptive of what is right or wrong, but more about what's possible. And so I would say, I mean, if you really want to push your examples, you're giving really interesting ones, Gwen. <laughs> like, okay, so someone wants to torture some kittens. Well, in some world, in some time and span of history somewhere, that might not be frowned upon in the way that you're suggesting that psychology would be frowning upon it right now. Or we could say there's something off about this tendency of yours to torture these cats. But in a different kind of way, I think that the the ways that norms and social expectations and the prescriptions that we are often raised up in or inherit are where the lines get really blurry. And it's where the fuzziness and that messiness comes in that philosophy becomes, I think, very compelling because that's about cultivating a kind of skill set to be able to really discern with purpose what differentiates some things versus others. And I don't think that there's one path to get to a kind of answer. I think there's actually something that happens in the process of us going through that reflective journey to try to come to an answer, even if we don't get something solid because the process of critical thinking and deeply unpacking like the cultural historical norms that we just assume, even from science and even from psychology, I think are really fascinating questions that to me are always undergirded by this potential for something different to be created out of that. And that's like my existential tendency showing. Well, for sure. I think, um, for example, if you and I had been wanting to study philosophy or any great works, 
and it had been a hundred, two years prior, we would be told that that would not make us happy. And we might injure ourselves because that's not what we're for. Mm -hmm. So you could ruin yourself, ruin yourself for a potential, like, I think literally, like it would injure your brain. It would make you crazy for women if they were to study and think about these things. Like overstrain your uterus. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then also make you unappealing in another point, make you unappealing for marriage, because that is actually what would make you happy. That is what you are for. So I can see, yeah, that's a really good point. Some of the cultural issues that would be brought up. And I I think to also go back to where we started with the art of living or where I fall into philosophy of it should help us live better lives with more fortitude and resilience and confidence and strength. I think that for me, like the topics that become really relevant are those everyday topics. So we could, for me in my life, like sexual assault, reproductive justice, racism, even like all these things that are difficult for people to navigate because they can be personally challenging or socially and politically fraught. Philosophy helped me move through my own life in a way that I think was incredibly beneficial. And not just because now I can be like righteous and think now I know the right answer, but I think more in the sense of like the art of living to be able to live more gracefully and intentionally with a sense of sensitivity to what matters, what's challenging and what's true and just and good. And then you get all those like philosophical principles again of the good and the just and the, and the right that kind of become the historical background for all the philosophical ruminations over the centuries. Do you have a favorite piece of literature that you would teach, a favorite piece of philosophy where you, or that maybe that you notice that your students really gravitated toward? Oh, that's such a good question. Thank you. <laughs> there are a handful that have really resonated with me, but the one that stands out the most is Maria Lagones' piece on playfulness, loving perception, playfulness, world traveling, and loving perception. I botched that title. I could say it again. <laughs> playfulness, world traveling, and loving perception. She writes in a poetic literary way about everything from her relationship with her mom and how to see her mother in a loving way to then the implications of what that has for like how we can really connect with each other across cultures and what it means to live fully. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful piece about how to engage in the world in a playful kind of way that's not this competitive impulse for domination. Like somehow to be right is to be like forceful, but instead there's this creativeness instead around playfulness. It's just a beautiful piece. And Maria Lagones just passed away last month and I never met her, but through years, her writing and sort of her just thematics of her work has really deeply influenced me. And students are the ones who are like, you should really keep teaching this piece because they like it. It it resonates with them in a really fascinating kind of way. I want to get to this idea of feminist friendship. Yeah. I loved your TED talk on it. I remember studying philosophy. I didn't read any female philosophers. And then later on, I had a chance to learn of what feminist philosophy was, but I was only reading white feminist thinkers. Mm -hmm. It took some time before I encountered on my own, I was never taught it on my own, that there was an entire world that had been left out. I think I remember one of the things that really struck me was this notion of, well, when women didn't work or something like that, or all the problems happened when women went to work. And that really was specifically talking about white women because women of color have always worked. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the first time I had really noticed that there was this deep divide in the concept of what a woman was and who were we talking about. And these images of women, even on television, were women who were playing the role of somebody 
who wasn't working, but they were actually working in order to be actors, actresses. We've talked about Lucille Ball. She, you know, yeah. plays one way and she was the brains behind the production. But at any rate, if you could expand on this notion of what is feminist friendship, I thought it was a, a lovely approach. In short, the idea of feminist friendship really is that there's political and philosophical significance for us to be purposefully engaging and developing relationships of intimacy and understanding across our differences. And so, I mean, friendship is more than just kind of kinship or being pals where you like to hang around each other and have fun. There's something more about the relationship that forms with that level of care and affection, but really knowing each other. And it's feminist in the sense that there's this political overlay because of that historical division and long-standing tension between white women and women of color in particular. That the, the feminist piece of it is that by women coming together across their differences and building those intimate bonds of understanding, we can better understand the worlds we come from and our experiences and how they're different, but then show up with a a stronger degree of solidarity and understanding of how we can support one another in a more united struggle against liberation. And if it's intersectional feminism, like that's where you get like women of color versus just white women, then we would also be addressing all the issues that affect our lives differently, like racism and classism and all the other isms too. So feminist friendship is it's a practice of resistance because we are socialized and conditioned to be separate from each other along the lines of our differences. So just by forming those bonds, I think that's already pretty resistant. But by doing that, developing those relationships where we understand each other, we see each other, and we literally care for each other, then we can show up for each other better in bigger and I think even more powerful ways as well. And it, I'll keep doing these little plugs just because I'm a philosopher and it's what I do. But Maria Lagones is actually one of the people who inspired the idea of feminist friendship for me because of her work that she did with Elizabeth Spellman, where they were talking about the how to actually do theory as white women and women of color and that white women have dominated the space and reduced and covered over the voices of women of color. So even with that essay that um, they did, Have We Got a Theory for You, which is where I introduced in the TED Talk, they introduced the idea of feminist friendship or really building these bonds across women's differences to have different kinds of relationships. And they also talk about what good theory is. So there's like this other little piece about like how philosophy and theory can be really important when it's done well as good theory. So Rudy, you might want to look into that one later so you have a sense for what makes good theory. <laughs> I, I think I think I could use that. Um, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm new. If you haven't figured it out yet, if you haven't listened to many of these podcasts, I'm new to the philosophy game. Yeah. And because I'm trying to uh, live a better life. I really am. And I'm studying as we go along. I guess I'm a student of Gwen's when we're on these podcasts. Mm -hmm. So let me just ask you back. What do you mean by the whole, you know, it explains how to do theory or unpack the whole theory concept a little bit so I can better understand it and take advantage of what the benefits of that are. When you talk about theory, just talk about something like a hypothesis or something a little bit more concrete. They basically break down good theory as being something like not all theory is created equal. So we could engage in theory, we could read articles and we could say we're doing philosophy now. And like I said at the beginning, like some of that might be really boring. And furthermore, some of the theories that we read might actually be problematic if they're theorizing justifications for racial oppression. So good theory has a lot of different criteria. Um, it involves locating ourselves in the world, 
helping us take responsibility for things that we can change and help us understand where there are things that exist outside of us that are shaping our experience. But they say everything from good theory can be, well, theory can be true and theory can be wrong, but theory can be liberatory, theory can be oppressive, theory can be boring, it can be fun. And so good theory has all these different qualities that goes so far beyond like true and false. It's actually about like, what is the effect of the theory and how does that shape us? And one of the key pieces that there should be in good theory, some kind of indication or path forward for us for what we can do now to be in the world differently. If it doesn't, then we're just what, like this is when you get the stereotype of philosophers like navel gazing, you know, arguing about like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin and like no one cares about that because it doesn't give us something to do in the life that we're leading. So a good theory then by, if I extrapolated everything that you just said, and it, it, I thought what you said was, was brilliant and, and if I can understand it, it makes sense, but let me, let me spit it right back. A good theory is something where you can, you can listen to it, understand it, and then probably live a better life based upon that theory because you've educated yourselves, you, you yourself, and you've opened your mind and you can apply that theory into everyday life. Yep. That's the art of living. <laughs> yeah, Perfect. I, okay. I think with your talk, one of the things that I, it was one example that you gave about what you would do if a friend said that they were diagnosed with a disease. Mm-hmm. The first thing you would do is you would Google it, you would look it up. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was such a perfect example of the way that people can be an ally to somebody else. So if somebody has another life experience, don't dismiss it or try to over talk, but just go ahead and look it up. What what yeah. does this mean? Because that's what you would do for a friend. So I like that approach. And I think that that is for everyone. I know, yeah. Rudy, you'd appreciate this. The memoir of uh, that really meant a lot to me that I loved so much was uh, Queen Nora of Jordan. Her memoir was really, really fantastic. And it was so interesting because she's, you know, raised in the United States, but then became the queen of Jordan. And she's part Arab, part, I think, of Western European. Um, But then also her describing her experiences of making that transition from American to then, would it be Jordanian? Is that how you say That's correct, Jordanian. Yeah, Jordanian. And then, um, but then also sometimes I, something that really struck me, she's also a beautiful woman and she is highly educated. One of the first people to have graduated from Stanford, I think one of the women, women's classes to graduate from Stanford. And when she came to the United States to give a talk, she was covered by the style section. Like, <laughs> and when she came to talk about Arab American relations, that's who, that's who showed up to cover her. But it was the first time, I think it stands out to me because I think it was the first time that I had read the point of view or the experience of, of an Arab American woman, mm-hmm. a Muslim woman and her leadership roles and the challenges that she faced. And she was in these different worlds and that was just so fascinating. Yeah. In response to the TED talk, like the kind of connections you're making, something that's landing on me is that's interesting in terms of how I've developed from the TED talk to now. You saying that it gives like some kind of prescription of how to be a better ally and show up, I think is true. That's where I was in like 2017 when I did that talk of being like, okay, so you hear there's an issue. You're getting called out for being white women. You're being called out for being racist with your feminism. Don't get defensive. Recognize that this is actually like 
a gift. It's a helpful suggestion to say, here's how you can do better. If you really care, we're offering you feedback right now to say, here's how you can do better. Go learn a little bit more. Don't dismiss someone's experience. Apologize if you mess up and then like show up for a person just like you would your friend so that when we show up for social justice, hopefully, fingers crossed, people have the skills already because they are decent humans in their friendships so they can show up for people they care about in an appropriate way. We just need to be able to map that on to how people can show up with respect to social justice issues. Again, that's where I was in 2017 and people were like, maybe I just need to be a better friend. I'm like, okay, so we've got more work to do that. I assume too much that people were already decent friends. But now the way I think about it, it's actually even more, I think it, the more profound and politically exciting potential of feminist friendship is that it I see it as pushing us beyond being allies, that this isn't actually about being allies at all. And it goes to a different kind of issue, which is kind of the connection that you just made, Gwen, of who do we actually know? And who do we connect with on an intimate level? Whose experiences are we not just familiar with, but are we involved in? And that's where friendship and like building that kind of intimacy is so important. So another a piece, a very important uh, collection of resources that helped me fill out this idea of feminist friendship even more is the collection of essays by radical women of color called This Bridge Called My Back. And it's a book from like the 70s. And all of these threads are presented in this book written by women of color who are like, hey, now decades ago, like 50 years ago almost, we're saying you white women are not showing up for us. But there's this particular piece of an essay with Barbara and Beverly Smith, I believe, their sisters. And they're talking about how white women in the feminist movement don't even know black women. And they don't have these relationships. And so it's like Maria Lagones with her notion of world traveling. Like whose experiences are we actually involved with? Who do we see on that level? And they have this, uh, back to Barbara and Beverly Smith, they have this moment where they say like, it's about who you can sit across the table with and laugh and cry and like touch their face and be present with. And how many women of color do white women have that experience with? And I think that that's the key now. I see it all the time today that it's more than just being an ally. It's like we are, our lives are lacking if we don't have that intimate experience of being able to hold a person and laugh and cry with them because we have that level of relationship with them. I think allyship is almost like the superficial cover over now where people be like, oh, I know someone who, and that's the, the risk of feminist friendship is like tokenizing to be like, oh, my best friend in college was fill in the blank of some marginalized group. That's not what this is about. It's instead something so much more deep. And the reason why I think it's really challenging, back to Lugones and Spellman, who inspired the idea with their essay about white women and women of color, is that they say it's not possible to really do this. And so I've taken it up as a challenge to be like, ooh, why could it not be possible? But they say this level of connection and communication and understanding and generosity that allows for like women to come together across their differences without hurting each other namely white women hurting women of color. It's not possible because we don't do that work to develop ourselves to be capable of that kind of intimate relationship with a person. We so seldom develop the skills of listening and just being able to see people without somehow exerting a different kind of force that alienates us even in our attempts to connect. So feminist friendship, again, it's like now I'm like, I do weird things. I like bring all these people into my home. Like we're going to force intimacy on ourselves. Like it's, I'm experimenting with all these different ways of engaging because it goes so much deeper. (laughs) Rudy, Rudy loves hugs. Rudy loves intimacy. No, there's a lot. 
Rudy wants to hold everyone's face while they no. cry. I was watching there's, Rudy's face as I was describing all of that. There's, there's a lot to Rudy unpack is, here. Rudy is all about... It is all about the physical touch wait, no, no, wait. of, of strangers getting hold, to know. Right? Hold on, I'm, I'm going to say a couple of profound <laughs> things here. Maybe uh, I'm going to uh, let me just unpack a couple of things. First, Gwen, to your point, as a Jordanian, my parents were born in Jordan. I was born here in the United States. I didn't know that Arabs weren't bad people growing up until Queen Noor really started to be on the TV in the 1980s, and she was held in this high regard. And she's the first Arab. I don't care, man. I don't care, woman where Americans were like, oh, she's great. She's beautiful. She speaks eloquently. So she's always had a, a great place in my heart because she gave me at least hope that like not all Arabs were bad terrorists. So, you know, when you say Queen Noor to probably any Arab, but in particular to Jordanians, you're talking somebody who's like means the world to them. So I'm glad that you brought her up. I'm glad that you read her memoirs. She's amazing. an amazing woman. Going to a lot of what Corey was just saying, I grew up with a lot of, um, like a part, most of my family is diverse. My dad had four brothers. Uh, he's the only one that married an Arab woman, uh, which is my mother, and they met in Amman, Jordan, growing up next to each other. One of his brothers married a Korean woman. One of his brothers married a, uh, a Mexican woman, from Korean from Korea, a Mexican from Mexico, and another brother married a, Ch a Chinese Hawaiian from Hawaii. So I was always around other races, however, I was not around African-Americans uh, until, I mean, really until college. That said, my experience being an Arab-American and always feeling, you know, that the strangeness, the otherness, the I'm always a bad guy-ness when, you know, because of the movies that came out in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. To be perfectly honest with you, I, I felt a kinship towards African-Americans. I just kind of, I, I could get where they came from. And when I did get to know and became friends with and li literally lived with African-Americans in college, they always said the same thing. They, they always kind of felt like right away and in law school, they just felt like, yeah, you know, for some reason, you know, we just, you get us. Uh, you, you've always gotten us. I didn't have the benefit of growing up with them, but I did have the benefit of my own experiences and, and now I was able to connect with them. So that, I mean, what's my point? People of, that are, have diverse backgrounds, I feel like they, they have a kinship towards other people that have diverse backgrounds because we all have something in common. We all feel kind of on the outside, whether you're a woman, whether you're a man, there, there is that connection there. I do worry when you were talking about the touching and the feeling and bringing the people into the home, I was uh, quivering because I, I am OCD and COVID and everything. How much damage is COVID-19 and the pandemic and the separation that we now are going to have until, you know, that vaccine gets here and we feel comfortable being around people? How much damage is that going to cause towards your cause, Corey, to bring people together to have these conversations? I'm pretty happy with Zoom because I could just sit here and be calm and like not worry about washing my hands and, and touching anything. So I kind of feel like pretty good and pr pretty collected, but I'm a complete weirdo if you haven't figured that out yet. I'm curious what your thoughts are about the damage that could come from this. Hmm, that's an interesting question. I think my first response is that COVID in terms of the physical distancing we have to practice doesn't have a significant effect on the potential for feminist friendship because they're, you know, how did other people develop friendships over time? Letters, phone calls, now we can do Zoom, FaceTime, whatever. So it's really about the investment 
of getting to know and support each other. And I think that actually because of COVID plus the overlay of the Black Lives Matter movement and then all the coalitionary movements for social justice that are being folded into our discourse right now, I think in very exciting ways, that actually elevates the potential for us to show up for each other better. So what I see right now is that a lot of people are recognizing like, wow, there's so much that I didn't know and didn't understand about how other people live because I've just been in my own little bubble. And now that there's this massive collective call for us to show up for each other, I think people are really trying to learn and see what they were missing before. And that I think has the potential to really deepen our possibilities for relationships that have a more meaningful connection. You just brought up a damn good point. Everyone's lives have been disrupted. Nobody's Mm -hmm. lives, nobody's life has been disrupted. No matter how rich you are, no matter how poor you are, we are all disrupted and we are affected. When your bubble is literally popped and you're kind of discombobulated and you're trying to figure things out, perhaps, for some people, for some people that have souls, uh, they can actually, their empathy abilities can rise because their bubble has popped and their lives have been affected. So, so maybe they're willing to kind of listen. Maybe they're willing to mm-hmm. kind of talk to people about issues that they weren't comfortable before because their own bubbles have been burst by COVID-19. So in a way, COVID-19 may be an amazing thing to have these feminist relationships or better race relations or yeah. just, just, just to make things better. Yeah, I think that people are hearing the demand that we engage in more difficult conversations. And usually the conversations are difficult because of levels of privilege or just ignorance, that that's why it's hard to connect across difference because some people show up and they don't know what they're doing in that conversation that could be really causing harm to the relationship because they're just too ignorant to their own lack of awareness. But we're being told we should be engaging these difficult conversations, even if that's just within your family members or you know in your smaller circles, talk with your friends about what's really going on. And I hear that as like a push to start engaging in a different kind of way than you usually do. Rather than just talking about like whatever you're watching on Netflix, start talking about these issues. And through that process of having those conversations, I think with pretty much anybody, again, we don't have often developed skill sets to even engage in conversations with people who are like us in meaningful ways, let alone across our differences. So this is uh, an iterative process of development and cultivating the potential for how we can engage differently across our differences. But the other piece is that I've, my work has over the past like decade and a half, like really focused on publicly engaged philosophy through social media. So right now all this zooming that we're doing and like the, so the physical distance to me, it's not a hindrance. I've always thought there's a lot of potential for us to have a digital space for connecting. And that's actually what my podcast is doing now too. So in COVID when I am isolated and home alone with no one to talk to, I started this podcast that is really the latest experiment in a practice of feminist friendship. Is it possible to do this? And me being alone, talking through a podcast, sharing experiences, and developing, I don't know, we'll see, like the intimacy that can come through a kind of relationship with people who are listening to it. And so far, I mean, it's still really early and it's in its uh, <laughs> evolution, but I've had amazing interactions with some friends who are listening to it. And it, it does deepen the conversation. And there is a kind of intimate sharing and, and recognition of ourselves that I think is coming up in different ways because of it. But yeah, that's even the podcast can be a practice of feminist friendship. Bravo, by the way, because you carried, I think I was episode two on oppression that I listened to and yeah. you did it. You're doing a solo. You were an excellent speaker. You carried that. It was, I mean, the time just flew by. I think I was folding laundry as I was listening to it. (laughs) 
but I mean, it's 40 minutes solo and it is like part lecture part, but, but you carried it. You did. That's not something many people can do. You're a great speaker. Well, thank I you. wish you best of luck with it. You talked about privilege as problematic in a negative sense mm-hmm. that it actually represents a lack as opposed yeah. to an advantage. Could you expand on that? You briefly mentioned it, but I was just hoping you could say a little bit more. Yeah, of course. And just as a side note, I really get into privilege in episode three of Meta Level Love too. And I start to introduce some notions of whiteness and white supremacy connected to all of that. But I think privilege is often talked about as this like, oh, I know I have these unearned benefits that I was just born with and not everybody has that. And it creates this kind of assumption that privilege is something that everybody should sort of level up to and as if like whatever we deem a life of privilege is still the standard the norm and the best that we should all be aspiring to so it's sad that not everybody has the same privileges that some people have but it doesn't take into account that privilege is more than just what helps you get through the world with greater ease it actually prevents you from being able to have a lot of awareness and understanding of different cultures but if especially if you're coming from a social justice lens like you literally don't have the experience of oppression and so you're not in a position to be interjecting yourself to address oppression because it's basically like your privilege prevents you from knowing these things so privilege becomes a deficit or a lack of fluency familiarity understanding of different systems and practices, but also especially like ways of being resistant to oppression. So when it comes to like liberation and coming up with alternative ways to be in the world, people with privilege are not the ones who are going to have the greatest insights for us. If anything, usually people with privilege are like, how can I get people up to my level of a standard of living? which is such a narrow and honestly kind of messed up way to view it because it doesn't call into question any of the systems that create the inequities of oppression in the first place. So privilege doesn't try to dismantle itself. That's how it becomes kind of a a lack of understanding. And then the other piece is that when people come from a place of privilege, rarely do they ask themselves, what am I missing out on? Instead of just assuming I've got all these things, it's so sad not everybody has access to the things I benefit from. We don't reframe privilege enough to say like, how is my life less uh, rich because of the things that I, the people, the experiences, the cultures, the relationships, the insight that I just don't have access to. So I like to think of privilege as being a very narrow place to operate from rather than this like supreme supremacist kind of assumption that uh, it becomes the norm that we should be striving for everybody to get to. It doesn't, it's not critical enough of what creates these inequities in the first place. I love that. I love that for a lot of reasons because as I was talking about like my family background, you Mm -hmm. know, my all immigrants, you know, they came here, they didn't have nothing, you know, they didn't, we didn't, we don't have generational wealth. I mean, we lost everything. We came here, we all kind of grew up together, and I'm privileged because of this immigrant experience. I'm privileged because we didn't have generational wealth. I'm privileged because we all, you know, worked together and I was around all of these diverse uh, people, uh, family members, and got exposed to all these cultures and and have learned so much. I feel like I'm the privileged one as somebody who didn't have the ability to grow up with anybody outside of their ethnic group or outside of their religion and, you know, got that generational wealth and they have this little narrow, quote unquote, beautiful privileged life. I don't think that's beautiful in any way, shape, or form. I don't even really, I'm not not really quite 100% sure how much they're really living because they haven't really experienced anything. So I'm with you. I 
privilege? Should that really be, should that really be strived for? Or should diversity of experiences, diversity of friendships, diversity of thought, diversity of beliefs, that's, in my opinion, should be strived for. I'm with you. I love that. Yeah, basically, it's like I'm trying to flip and invert our usual way of talking about an asset versus deficit framework, because we try to push back, especially in like higher ed education of saying, don't go with a deficit approach to say that students of color are lacking in things that we need to somehow supplement and enrich their lack, but instead recognize that students of color come with assets that are actually beneficial that we should really be enhancing because of what they bring to the conversation. And so then the privileged group are really the ones who have more of a deficit because it's a limitation in their exposure and their experience uh, to be able to go beyond really the dominant norms and values of dominant culture. We wish you 100% success with your podcast. Uh, we'll do everything that we can to, to help you. And uh, you know, we look forward to listening to it, telling our listeners all about it. And, yeah, thank you very much for coming on. Well, this was awesome. Yeah, thank you so much. It was really nice to meet you. Um, it was nice to meet you too. I appreciate the conversation so much. I hope that you do get to listen to Meta Level Love and enjoy it. <laughs> I will. I Believe me, I will. One last helpful tip, though. Start with episode one. It's not okay. one you can pick and choose from because it's kind of a thing that I'm developing on purpose. So. I Good. A planned strategy podcast-wise makes a hell of a lot of sense. Yeah. (laughs) Great. Well, thank you so much. Take Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Rudy, for being such an awesome co-host. And thank you, Dr. Wong, for your time. If you have any questions about this episode or any other episodes, you can get in touch. Good is in the details pod at gmail.com. And if you'd like to become a patron of the show, go to patreon.com slash good is in the details. Okay, now, I hope you're still wearing your masks, socially distanced, taking good care of yourselves, and until next time, bye.